Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Federal employees are just getting their first paychecks of the new year with that 5.2% raise. But Congress is already starting to look ahead to 2025. House and Senate Democrats once again have made a pitch to give feds a much larger raise next year. Stop us if you've heard this before. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And how much is actually in that latest bill for 2025, Drew? For 2025, House and Senate Democrats are looking to give federal employees a 7.4% pay raise. And this is as part of the what is called the Federal Adjustment of Income Rates, or FAIR Act, And you see this same bill get introduced year after year. I believe it's been around for about a decade uh, where you have a lot of Democrats in Congress saying that they are pushing for, you know, better pay for federal employees and that it would support them in a lot of different areas. This year's 7.4% breaks down into a 4% across the board raise plus a 3.4% locality pay adjustment. And it was introduced by Senator Brian Schatz and uh, Representative Jerry Connolly. So they're saying this is an adjustment to get them up federal employees, that is, up to a higher level historical, because it is an election year. So they don't dare say it's because of inflation, because that would then impute inflation on a Democratic administration. Right. I think the the reason that they are you know pushing for this and that they have for several years is because they say that they're for a long time have been struggles to recruit and retain federal employees. Um, and they believe that, you know, just having a larger pay raise would just make sense for them. It would be very beneficial to the workforce overall. So that's why they continue to to push for this, even though it's never actually been legislation that's been enacted. Uh, they want to, you know, just continue to push for that. So the 7.4% you said is composed of a 4% across-the-board salary increase for everybody in the GS, I guess, and the 3% for locality. How do they come up with that? So it's not just, you know, a number pulled out of thin air. They do have a method for how they get to that 7.4%. The uh, 4% comes from actually a law from 1990 called the Federal Employees Pay Comparability Act, or FEPCA, And that law authorizes agencies to give a pay raise that is the uh, Employment Cost Index, or ECI, minus half a percentage point. And the ECI, just for anyone who doesn't know, that is the percent increase that private sector wages saw over the last year. So it's the idea there with FEPCA is to try to keep federal wages in line with those in the private sector. So that's where the base percentage comes from, that 4%. Then on the other hand, you have the locality pay adjustment, and that's where you see a little bit more of a difference here. Uh, For the FAIR Act, they use the rates of inflation from the last year. So with those being about 3.4% during 2023, that's where they got that number. And then combined, of course, you get the 7.4%. All right. That makes sense. I guess it gets back to the eternal argument, are feds paid less or more or about the same relative to their counterparts in the private sector. And I've always felt there is really no single answer to this because it depends entirely on the job you're doing. Some jobs, they're way below the the, uh, private sector. Some, they're actually better. 
you're you're right, Tom. I think that there are a lot of people who push for that or say that you know it's not it doesn't really make sense to have just one pay increase for every single federal employee. You have some sectors like in you know technology, like IT, cybersecurity, uh, who maybe are paid a lot less than the private sector. Others where it maybe is a little bit more comparable in other types of occupations. So I think you have this this conversation and somewhat of a push for. Uh, broader pay reform in that sense and to try to look at it in a little bit differently than just you know one number based on location uh, but at least in terms of this bill and this push from Democrats I, uh, they're working within what the laws and um, what actually is done right now to to consider this raise. And do they have any Republican support whatsoever either in the House or the Senate? Uh, so far, they do not. I believe last year's FAIR Act got a couple of Republicans on board, uh, but generally this is a pretty, uh, you know, there's a pretty partisan divide on this bill, and a lot of Democrats are the ones who are who are pushing for that larger raise for federal employees. But there have been years, I mean, this bill comes up annually, and there have been times when there is a Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate, and it hasn't passed then either. That is a really good point. Um I think maybe there's just not enough attention on the bill, or maybe it's never just been pushed towards um, a floor vote or taken up in a committee. Uh, But yeah, no, it is true that this bill, it's been introduced every year, uh, but most times, much more often than not, the uh, Congress actually just defers to the president and that whole um, process for determining the the pay raise rather than enacting something themselves. Yeah, that's the pay agent, a three-person pay commission, so to speak, that makes that recommendation. And pretty much that's what happens. The president puts it in, nobody objects in Congress, and therefore it flies through. Generally, that is the process. I think for 2025, you know, we just saw the 7.4% for the FAIR Act for the actual uh, proposal from the Biden administration. We'll see that coming up in the budget request in March, most likely. Um, and then that's the, the starting point of that whole process. Then you have the alternative pay plan in August and the finalization in December. That's generally how it goes. Uh, I don't know that there's anything really indicating this year that we'll see the FAIR Act or something similar get uh, pushed forward on. But, you know, there's always a chance. And I think that's why you have Democrats like Connolly and Schatz really continuing to push for this. And, of course, the 5.2 percent raise did go through, even though the appropriations bills for 2024 still haven't been passed. And the latest continuing resolution has a few more weeks to go before the next big showdown. And so that's good news. Feds did get their raise, despite the fact that there's no appropriation. Right. And that it may, might make things a little bit complicated, Tom, for agencies who are now having to offer those bigger raises to federal employees with the same budget that they had last year. It's a little bit hard to maybe figure out or scrape together where to get the money to pay federal employees more uh, with that 5.2 percent raise. But, you know, like I mentioned, the 5.2 percent was what was included in the budget request, and that whole process went through without uh, Congress really mentioning or bringing it up at all in the appropriations. And that's why we have the raise, but no uh, appropriations yet. Well, they might do it by the CC approach, the C-squared approach, cut contracting. (laughs) Maybe. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's... Um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of 
our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils, that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.